morning. We are Malaka and Gordon Falk. I serve on the elder board and together we host the South Austin Young Adults Community Group. <laughs> Shout out Southeast. <laughs> and we are here to read for you from Acts 2 verses 32 through 37. This Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much. Gordon, thanks for just looking good. <laughs> well, maybe that's debatable. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, that's, that's funny, though. I know you know it's funny. Hey, good morning, church. Uh, so good to have you. Name is Franziski, uh, one of the pastors here at Austin Oaks Church. Uh, we are in this series, Build Your Church, and we've dedicated this year to focus on evangelism. As part of that focus, we feel called and we feel compelled by Jesus to also be focusing on prayer. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we were challenging the church to give ourselves to about 3,000 3, hours of prayer. And so we're going to give about 1,000 hours as a church in corporate prayer. We're encouraging to spend time praying in your small groups for the lost and praying in your own individual lives for those who also don't know Jesus because we are taking the words that Jesus exhorted his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And as we were reflecting on that passage, it became clear that, whoa, maybe we are the workers to go. And so we're going to be committed to praying for those who don't know Jesus. Now, I want to share with you one story that already, you know, hit the, the, uh, the radar of the staff. There was an individual in our church who wrote down three to five names of people who don't know Jesus in his life, and he just started praying for them. And that very weekend, the weekend after that Sunday, he got news that that individual gave his life to the Lord Jesus. That is awesome. So, that, that's the heart because we do believe that like when we pray, God moves and we're holding the tension that, yeah, God is sovereign, but yet there's things that we are called and exhorted to do and to be as a church. And that's why we are in this series, Build Your Church. Jesus will build his church. Now, if you um, get to know me a little bit, and, and more so up north than down here, I haven't quite figured it out down here, but the, the truth be told is I'm a wannabe fisherman. Like, I think I know how to fish. I know how to do it. Like, I know how to throw things in the water, and if something grabs onto the hook, all right, you yank the rod back and reel. But I'm definitely not an expert, but I like to pretend to be an expert, okay? Like, I'm that prideful. Like, I like to, if I do something, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. So usually before I go out fishing, like, I have this tendency to want to go to, like, a sporting goods store. So, like, I'll go to Academy or Cabela's, and then I'll walk down the, the lure aisle. And if you've ever done that, it's rather overwhelming. There are just way too many lures in that aisle. So, like, I'll walk down that aisle, and, you know, so 
some poor guy would come by and be like, sir, do you need any help? Of course, I'm going to lie and be like, no, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm looking for. And I'm just staring there at, at all these different lures. There's all sorts of different types. There's repalas and spinners and jigs and fake worms, all these kind of things. And, and I'm like, quite frankly, I don't know what to buy. So I just go by what looks good. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, I think this one looks real or this one would act real in the water. Maybe this color looks good. And so I just fill up my cart with assortments of different lures. And then I go, oh, wait a second. What was that one lure that I used that one time to catch that one fish? It has to work again. So then I'll go find it. And, and if I were to show you my tackle box and I thought about bringing it, but I was too embarrassed to, you open it up and all it is is this conglomeration of a whole bunch of lures that are all rusted, tangled up, busted, and broken that have never, ever, ever been used. It's such futility. But the reality is, it's only a snapshot of my greater futility in my life. Trying to find that lure that will save my soul. Trying to find that one thing that will bring peace in my life, that will bring joy in my life, that will bring me the freedom that I'm longing for in my life, to deliver me from my brokenness, to free me from certain sinful habits and patterns, to remove the haunting of my pride and insecurities, to bring rest to the areas of anxiety. And if you were to look at the tackle box of my life, what you would see inside is this assortment of lures, of broken saviors and tyrannical lords that do not fulfill the very promise that I thought it would. And truth be told, you have your own tackle box full of your own lures, full of your own broken saviors and things that you've given your heart over to, to act as a Lord in your life. This is the human condition. We do this because we're broken, and because we're broken, we long to find something to fix it, and we don't really even know what it is. We just instinctively go about trying to find it. The human story is the story of a collection of broken saviors and tyrannical lords. In fact, the story really picks up when we realize that we want to choose to be our own Lord. We want to choose to figure out what is the best means of saving and rescuing my own soul. We don't want God to be God. We don't want God to be in control. We want to be in control. And if we were to go all the way back to the origins of humanity in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we would see where brokenness showed up. And, it wraps, and it's all wrapped up in the question where Satan asked Adam and Eve, did God really say? And that question just evoked all sorts of doubt and confusion where they started to question, is God actually good? Is God actually withholding? Should we know these things? You know what? I'm going to choose to be the one who's going to decide what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. I don't trust God to be that person anymore. And so that's what happened. And the moment they did that was the moment that brokenness has just completely ravaged humanity. And even in their moment of brokenness, they immediately try to find solutions to fix the issue. That's our story. Our story is one where we don't want to give up control. Let's just be honest. We want to come to God on our terms. And, and not only that, like sometimes I would even dare to say we want to be the ones who choose the very fate of God. Is God real or not? As if that's for us to decide. 
we need to come to grips with the fact that we constantly think we know what's best. We constantly think we know what's right. We constantly think we know what's good. And we constantly think we know what's evil. And we also have formed our opinions and our thoughts and our attitudes about God that somehow have elevated to the point of being above God's truth. This is the heartbeat of the human story. And the result of that is brokenness, sin, suffering, death, it's just a collection of broken saviors. That's what it is. A bunch of saviors that can't save, deliver, or restore our brokenness. A bunch of lords that would do nothing but cause us damage and grief. You can call it what you want. Idols. And for us, it takes all different shapes and forms. And some of us, it's money. Some of it's relationships. Some of us, it's status. Some of us is trying to put our hope and everything else in all their institutions, whatever it is. But Jesus was clear that all of these saviors and lords that we want to put our heart in, our trust into, are nothing but an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the reality. So I want to ask a question as we look at the first sermon ever preached in the early church. And the question is this, what will you do with Jesus? And what if Jesus is exactly who he said he was? What if he is exactly as he's betrayed in the Gospels? What would that do for you? How would that change your life? Believer and non-believer alike. Because let's be honest, those of us who follow Jesus, we still have lordship issues, do we not? We still struggle with releasing control and surrender. We like what God can do for us, but we oftentimes relate to God on our terms and not his terms. So what will you do with Jesus. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me. And I just want to kind of like do a quick little flyby to help us understand as to how we got to this part in this story. Luke has two volumes. You've got the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And we looked at chapter 1 of Acts and just started to realize that Jesus came, started preaching again about the kingdom of God for about 40 days after he resurrected. And he told the apostles at that time and other disciples to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit will come, then they will be empowered to be his witnesses. And then they will go to the ends of the earth. And Acts chapter 2 starts out with exactly that happening. It happened during this festival called Pentecost, which was the celebration of the harvest, which connects to what Jesus was talking about, like how the harvest is plentiful, right? Like we're to pray to the Lord of the harvest, and we're supposed to be witnesses for Jesus. And all of a sudden, this crazy scene starts to happen in this upper room. We don't know how many weeks it took for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit, but it came, this mighty wind came, and it's like, I gotta imagine, it was so loud, okay? Like, let's just like piece some context here. At the end of this sermon, it says 3,000 people were baptized, okay? That implies at least 3,000 people were around the upper room to hear or to see this phenomenon. So when it says like a mighty rushing wind, I gotta imagine it was like really loud. 
How, would you, how else would a crowd of that large show up? And when they show up, they see this crazy thing, or at least some people did. They didn't have iMeg then. Little flames on the head. They hear the apostles like speaking in tongues of their native land, which is this representation of the ends of the earth at this moment. And they're like, what is this all about? And some are snickering and sneering. They're like, they're drunk. And Peter's like, whoa, hold up, time out. We're not drunk. Humorous. But he goes, this, what's happening, is what Joel prophesied many, many years ago, what you were all longing for, what you're all looking for. God said this is what would happen, and here's what's happening. That's what's going on in this moment. At least, like you got to think about it, at least 3,000 people are at this scene. And Peter starts preaching, verse 22. I want you to take note of a few things in this verse, okay? And I'm going to highlight them for you because they're going to show up multiple times. Peter starts, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. I want you to take note of that. And I want you to start asking the question, why did Peter say Jesus of Nazareth? Like, what is he trying to do with that name? A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did. Now, take note of this. Through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Here's how Peter starts this sermon. Guys, all of this is happening because of Jesus of Nazareth. I love what Peter's doing there. He's placing Jesus in an actual geographical location in history, in a time. And the reason why he's doing that is because everybody that's there thought they knew who Jesus was. They all formed their opinion of Jesus. He's from Nazareth. We know Jesus. We know his dad. We know his mom, Joseph and Mary. We even interacted with his family, his brothers and sisters. Wasn't he a peasant, like a poor carpenter? Like we know Jesus. In fact, quite frankly, nothing good comes from that place either. Peter starts out, he's like, guys, everything that's happening is because of the man that you already judged, who you think you know who he is, Jesus of Nazareth, from that one place. That's why this is all happening. And you got to imagine that it's actually ruffling some feathers because it's like they deemed him either as like just a prophet or just like, you know, some lunatic or a potential threat to the peace of Israel. A lot of these people not too long ago were yelling out, crucify him. They knew him. Peter even said that God attested, like validated his works. He did it in their midst. They saw it. They can't refute it. And now Peter's like, it's because of him. It's because of Jesus. Why does this matter? We're always, as, as, as long as like, I breathe and I'm up here, I'm always going to refer back to Matthew 16 as one of the most important places to be asking the most important question. Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi. Standing in front of this place that was nicknamed the Gates of Hell. And this place that's full of broken saviors and tyrannical lords. This place full of sin and heathenism. This place that's full of people choosing the fate of God. Choosing that they know what's right and wrong. And Jesus asked his disciples, who do these people say that I am? And then he asks the disciples the question, well, how about you? Who do you say that I am? 
I need you to understand again and again and again, this is the most important question you can answer in your life. What will you do with Jesus? Because here's the reality. Every single person in this context in the New Testament preformed their opinions and judgments of who they thought Jesus was. And they either wrote him off or they believed in him. They all thought they knew who he was. Jesus of Nazareth is no different than today, right? If you were to ask anybody in your context, anybody in the city, who is Jesus? Everybody has an opinion. And most often than not, most of us take our opinions to the level of fact. And these days, most people would say that Jesus was one of three things. Either he was a prophet that was bringing Israel back to its true form of religion. Or they would have said that he was to be this political savior who was going to free them from the oppression of Rome and all the corruption that even infiltrated certain aspects of Judaism. Or he's an imposter, a fake, a liar, a magician, maybe even in cahoots. And I did say cahoots. I like that word. With, with Satan. Because like they, they even accuse him. It's like, he's demon-possessed. He's a man who has great charisma that can deceive and manipulate crowds. That's how they saw Jesus. Guys, Jesus of Nazareth, the one you judged, the one you crucified, that's why this is all happening. If you were to ask people today, I, I propose to you here are four common thoughts of how people would see Jesus today. He's a great philosopher or even just a good moral teacher. Some would even say, yeah, Jesus is one of the ways to God. Not the way, but one of the ways. Some would say that he's an ideal, a concept. He wasn't real. Others would probably even say he's the founder of Western morality, right? The golden rule, which today in our culture, we're trying to deconstruct that morality. Here's the thing. Nobody left to our own, would ever say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Left to our own, none of us would say that Jesus is the Lord. Because that goes against everything we believe about humanity. We're in control. We're the masters of our fate. We're even the master of God's fate. We'll choose if he's real or not. And if we is real, he will do it on our terms, not his. What will you do with Jesus? Jesus was crystal clear in the Gospels. He was never going to conform to anybody's whims or expectations or thoughts of who he was. He claimed, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Lord over all. He claimed to forgive sins, which equated him with God, which was blasphemy to the Jewish thinking. He accepted worship from people. Who does that? If anybody said, worship me today, you'd be like, you nuts. Jesus even says, like, if they don't worship me, the rocks will cry out. He declared, taught, and even lived the fact that he came to save humanity from their sins to restore what has been broken because we are people who are broken that go after broken saviors and attach ourselves to lords that oppress us. 
I want to I share with you a quote from C.S. Lewis, who is a great Christian thinker and writer. And I have this quote up here because it's a little bit long. And so I want you to listen carefully because this is so beautifully articulated. C.S. Lewis writes about this very issue. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Think about that. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So what will you do with Jesus? Men of Israel, listen. Jesus of Nazareth, he's the reason why all of this has happened. And I love what now Peter says. He was attested. He's a man attested to you by God. That's a powerful phrase. Peter is saying, God has marked Jesus. He has validated Jesus. He has proven Jesus to be exactly who he said he is. And he did this by signs, wonders, and miracles. Jesus has been validated. He's been accredited, attested by God to verify that he is historically, factually true. And even the, the tense here of this phrase is, is extremely clarifying. It's, it is, it's implying that God has authentic, authenticated Jesus to be the Christ and Lord for all time. That what Jesus did and what he said will achieve lasting results forever. When Jesus came and preached the gospel, he did signs and wonders and miracles. And even Luke had Jesus saying, like, if demons are casted out in your presence, that means the kingdom of God has come. When John the Baptist was in prison awaiting his execution, he started to doubt if Jesus was actually the Messiah. So he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask. And they came and said, Jesus, we're all wondering, are you the one we should be looking for or is there another? What did Jesus say? He goes, tell John what you have seen and heard. The dead are raised, the blind see, the, heal, or the sick are healed, and the kingdom is being proclaimed. God validated Jesus by what he said and what he did. But not only that, he validated Jesus by his death, his burial, resurrection, and exaltation. And here's why this is good. Friends, listen to me. I want this to encourage your faith like none other. Our faith in Jesus isn't just subjective. It isn't just how I feel. It isn't just personal experience. Even though that's valid, it's objective. It's factual. It's true. It's historical. You can't argue it. Jesus was a real human being who invaded human history that not only Christian authors wrote about, but non-Christian historians have written about that we have on the pages of antiquity. It's objective. 
We know Jesus was crucified. It's historically proven. We know that something about the resurrection happened. The resurrection did happen. It's historically proven. We know these things. God has attested him. He has proven him. It's not just this thing. Like, man, I get so, like, it just grinds me when people say, well, Jesus is good for you. If it works for you, great. You're like, bro, that doesn't even matter. It's factual. Like, if he was just a great teacher, sure. If it was just a philosophy, sure, it's good for me. But if he died and he conquered death and he exalted, what are you going to do with that? That's factual. I mean, this is so factual that for like, okay, think about it. This just dawned on me last night. 3,000 people are hearing this sermon. If like the resurrection didn't happen, now this is like two months after the death and resurrection, like two months later, if it wasn't true, why did anybody stop Peter and refute him? Peter, stop with this resurrection nonsense. I will show you where his body is. Let's go, guys. Come on. Nobody did it. In fact, at that time, there was so much fake news circulating about the resurrection. They didn't know what to do. You can look this up. This is historically proven. Like they were talking about, well, this Jesus, yeah, he was crucified and his followers were just spreading lies that he resurrected. What they did is they just stole his body. Or my, one of my favorite ones was that there was a doppelganger. <laughs> like these were things that people, like historians have reported. Like someone who looked like Jesus went on the cross and then the real Jesus walked around. Okay. Or, or even better yet, this one's really great. Like when Paul says in Corinthians that there was 500 people who witnessed, who talked and interacted with the resurrected Jesus, they say that those people were hallucinating. Paul's like, no, there's 500 people. Go find them. They're still alive. You, in this context of scriptures, you can go ask them. Nobody here stopped Peter and said, wrong. He didn't resurrect. His tomb's right there. Nobody refuted it because they couldn't. They were dumbfounded. They couldn't bring any explanation to what brought them to the upper room with the wind and the fire and the speaking in tongues. They're like, what's going on? And Jesus is like, guys, Jesus of Nazareth, God has proven him to be exactly who he was, to prove exactly who he said he is. And what are you going to do with him? Verse 23, this Jesus, that's, you're going to see this phrase. If you were to read this whole passage, you would see Peter going this, this Jesus. Which one? Jesus of Nazareth, the one you prejudged. The one you thought you knew, the one you assumed was this, but he's actually this, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. Oh, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. This is this tension of God's sovereign plan 
Like, yes, this was his predetermined plan that he would send his son Jesus to die on the cross, to be buried and to resurrect because of our brokenness. And yet at the same time, you see human action. Like we, not just they, but you and I are responsible for Jesus going to that cross. It's our brokenness, my friends. It's our rebellion. It's our arrogance that we think we know better that caused Jesus to come to this earth to die on that cross. There's responsibility on us for that. Yeah, but Brandon, nobody put Jesus on the cross besides God. You're absolutely right. But that cross was there because he needed to die on that cross because of our sins. It was our transgressions that caused his wounds. God predetermined this because he loves you, because he's the greatest savior ever, and he's the greatest Lord ever. He did this for you. He took on flesh for you so that we could choose to empty out the tackle box of all of our broken saviors, to free ourselves from the tyranny of other lords that we give ourselves, and to live for Jesus. This God raised him up, validating him by conquering death so that you and I could live this new life and have this living hope. Verse 32. Love how Peter wraps this up. Here it is again. This Jesus. <laughs> the one you prejudge just constantly bring it back. This Jesus God raised up. And by the way, we're all witnesses of it. We were there. I could tell you about the time when we were fishing and we thought he was done. And he cooked us breakfast on the beach. I could tell you about the time when he told me to put my Thomas's finger in his, we could tell you about, we, could, we were witnesses of this. No one refutes it. If they're lying, what do they gain by lying? A lot of people say like they were just making up a lie. Well, really, for what reason? I mean, did they get like all of a sudden like power, prestige, and position by keeping this lie that Jesus resurrected? No. What they got in return was death. Why would they lie about something that didn't happen? They died for a lie? They're lunatics. They died for it because it happened. So what we need to do this morning is we need again to see God rightly, for us to let go of the broken saviors of our lives, to stop trying to find that one thing that's gonna bring us what we need, to stop giving our hearts to lords that just want to destroy us. We need to remember Jesus because this is the gospel. This is the very power of God for all who believe. Like, Peter lays the gospel out. If you want to know what the gospel is, it's right here in Acts 2. He, his incarnation, his ministry, he came from heaven to earth. He became man, and not just merely man, but he was fully God and fully man, so that he could do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He died on the cross. He resurrected from the dead. He exalted to heaven, which then allowed the Holy Spirit to come. 
And now because of his present exaltation, he is the Lord of lords, and he's going to continue to reign until he defeats all open rebellion against God, and he's going to come again. Our salvation, our healing, our restoration, our hope and freedom all depends on Jesus. What will you do with him? Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain, for certain, fact, witness, objective, God attests to him. Not just this whimsical, I feel God right now thing. Maybe Israel. For certain that God has made him both. Say that word with me. Both. Yeah, I know y'all don't like either team in the Super Bowl. And I know you're going to be more enthusiastic than that. Let's try that again. Let's say that word both together. That word is uncomfortable. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Let me propose to you why that word is uncomfortable for many of us. We in modern evangelicalism, we like Christ. Yeah, okay, Son of God, appointed Messiah. He's our Savior. He died for me. He's going to fix me. He's going to restore me. He's going to heal me. He does things for me. Even like, yeah, maybe like when everything goes south in my life, I'll actually pray to him because I heard he's Savior. He's Christ. And I'm going to come to him on my terms. I want him to do what I want him to do, but I'm not going to give up control. But he's both Christ and Lord. Lord means king. Lord means allegiance. Lord means surrender. Lord means you're not in control. Lord means your opinions don't really matter. Lord means trust, faith. Human, humanity struggles with this because we want to be in control. Or at the very least, we want to choose what will be our savior, and what we will give to be Lord over us. This phrase, Lord, is one of the main reasons why Jesus got nailed on that cross. And it's one of the main reasons why we choose to refuse him. Because being Lord means he demands all. He's both Christ and Lord. I remember when one of my <laughs> major moments in my life, when, I, when God finally saved me, but I remember just before then, things were going south in a dramatic fashion. Couldn't quit drinking for the life of me. Wanted to. I knew the things I was, I was doing in my life were wrong. And I knew that. Inside, at night, in those lonely hours, going, man, this isn't right. I know that. But how I lived was like, this is great. This is fun. Depressed, trying to change things, trying to fix things. And it just hit this like major low moment when like I put my best friends 
in danger by driving them home on interstate while intoxicated. And I remember laying in bed, praying, going, God, this is not okay. I will live for you if I came to God on my terms because I wanted what he could do for me, but I was not yet willing to surrender control. And I think many of us relate to God that way. We come to him on our terms, with our opinions, our desires, instead of surrendering to him. This is why we have so many broken saviors and so many tyrannical lords in our lives. But what if, friends, what if he's the savior you long for? And what if he is the Lord that you need? Because I'm telling you, Jesus is far more beautiful than you know. He's far better than you know. Romans 5, verses 5 through 8. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us for a while we were still weak, for a while we were still enemies, for a while we were still choosing to decide the fate of God, while we were still holding our opinions of him and ourselves above his truth, while we were his enemies, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one scarcely would die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but surely not the whole world. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we still chose to go our own way and be the determiners of our own fate and God's fate, he sent his son to die for us. Jesus is Friends, he is the savior you're longing for and he is the Lord you need. Tell me, please, I will stay here all day and listen, tell me what other God or what other Lord could do or has done what Jesus has done. Tell me. I mean, he came to earth incarnate. I don't care, historical fact, proven. He took on flesh to become like us, to identify with us, sympathize with us. He went through temptation. He was abandoned. He suffered and struggled. He took on flesh to live a life that we should have lived but couldn't. He paid the price for our sin and brokenness so we didn't have to. That it was his life, his body broken, his blood shed. He loved his enemies. My goodness. He gives hope to the weary. He releases the burdens we carry. He gives peace to those who are anxious. He wept with those who weep. He gave people second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, infinity and beyond chances. Toy story. People who are ridden off by society and culture. He came to serve, not to be served as the creator of the whole world came in poverty, came in obscurity, no pomp, no ceremony, comes into Jerusalem, the city of God, on a donkey, humbles himself to the point of death, washes the disciples' feet, who in a few hours later would abandon him completely, laid his life down so we could have hope, made a way when there is no way. He intercedes and prays for you now. He fights for you. And when you are his, nothing on earth could ever separate you again from his love and care, security forever. He's our good shepherd. He speaks to us. He knows us by name. He will never get rid of our hope. And he's the full embodiment of grace and truth. And when we embrace and live by his truth, we understand freedom. Tell me another Lord that does that. 
This Jesus, for certain, friends, it's not subjective. It's fact. What will you do with him? He is the Savior you're longing for, and he is the Lord humanity needs. But he's the one we put on the cross. We're responsible for that. And we can't understand Jesus until we understand our sin. Peter says to the crowd in verse 23 and 36, you did this. Well, yeah, literally, they didn't do it. And he also is referencing the whole world, implying you and me, and Peter would even throw himself into this equation. We did this. I think of that old hymn, How Deep is the Father's Love for Us. It was my sin that held him there. And on that cross is the greatest irony in the world where our sin takes him there, but that's also where his love meets us. Have you ever been cut to the heart? I mean, I think of Peter. Like when he openly denied Jesus those three times at that moment, and when he saw Jesus lock eyes with him, his face bloodied, swollen, beaten, Peter was cut to the heart because he realized And that's exactly what happens here. What will you do with Jesus? As these individuals, these 3,000 some heard this, and they have no room for argument here. This Jesus of Nazareth, this one who you knew, you saw, you heard all of this two months ago, it's all fresh. You know he died, you, you know he resurrected. God has validated him. He is Christ. He is Lord. And their response needs to be ours. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin and righteousness. It's the great tension of the gospel. There's no life if there's no confrontation of death. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Even now, what shall we do? Peter, in essence, lays out three things for him. Repent. Repent. In this context, what Peter is saying to them, change the way you think about God. Change your attitude towards him. He's not who you thought he was. He is who he said he is. Repenting is releasing that control, changing the way you live, your old thoughts of who God is, 
and by faith believing the truth of who Jesus is. He's not your adversary. He's for you. The kindness of God leads to repentance. See his heart. Don't listen to opinions from other people. This is historical truth. God's not out to get you. He's not out to shame you. He's not out to condemn you. He's there to save you. And as you repent, Peter says, do this for the forgiveness of sins. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. Because it's there on the cross where our sin and his love collide. Condemnation gives way to goodness. And yes, we ought to feel the conviction and guilt of our sin. But when we see and go to the cross and ask for forgiveness, his love wipes that away. Some of you need to confess your sin. Some of you are like, there's certain sin in my life. I'll confess, confess, confess. But this one sin, God can't forgive. Confess it. Because that's just arrogance. You're essentially saying that your sin is greater than the cross. It takes faith. 1 John 1.5. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to cleanse us. He wants to do this. That's why he's such a beautiful Savior and why he's such a trustworthy Lord. He will forgive of those sins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Repent and he even throws in, be baptized. Baptism is a powerful symbol. It's a symbol of us identifying with Jesus, his death when we go under. It's about being buried with him. The old is being gone. And when we come up, it's this picture of resurrected to new life. But did you know that the act of baptism, the symbol of baptism, is also a symbol of accepting his lordship? Baptized in the name of Jesus authority, lordship. It's a picture of surrender. Surrender your rights. Surrender. He is the perfect Lord. Because here's the deal. You're, you're, you're living for some Lord in your life. It's whatever you worship. There's only one Lord that will free you and give you everything your soul and heart desires. It's Jesus. So as we conclude this time, I ask the worship team to lead us in a song, Jesus Be the Center. And I want to do a few things. One, if you've never repented and put your faith in Jesus, and if you never ask Jesus for forgiveness of sins, this is your morning. Know for certain that God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. And the only appropriate response is to repent, ask for forgiveness, and surrender your rights. It's there where you will actually find the life you long for. 
for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a while, let's just be honest, giving up control is very difficult. And if we were honest, we still come to God on our terms. And we still have bad thoughts about who God is and how God sees us and interacts with us. And quite frankly, there are also times where we kind of put Jesus out on the periphery. Let this be a time of repentance and turning back to him. And I also want to do one last thing because we're going to see this in Acts. It's going to show up all the time. When people repented and put their faith in Jesus, they got baptized. In fact, it's a, it's a, it's a sacrament that Jesus gave us. It's, it, it's a command of obedience because it represents allegiance, identification. And so I do want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you strongly to do it. Sign up on the Connect card. We're going to have times for baptism real soon. Go up there in the foyer there and sign up. Maybe you've been baptized as a baby and it wasn't like your decision, but you thank mom and dad for that time, which is great and all that. But you're like, this is my time. I want to choose this. I want to encourage you to do it. It doesn't save you, but it's definitely an act of surrender. It's an act of identification and lordship. So wherever you're at this morning, allow me to pray for you as we ask the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. Father, I ask that in this time, in this moment, you would reveal to us exactly what it is in our hearts that we need to repent of. God, every single one of us in this room struggle with lordship. We all do. So God, forgive us for that. Forgive us for constantly believing lies about who you are how you see us, how you operate. Lord, forgive us for thinking we know what's right, what we know, we know what's best for us. Forgive us for denying you and pushing you out and thinking we can decide your fate. Father, I want to pray for my friends in this room who may be feeling that tug to repent and put their faith in you for the first time. God, I ask that they would experience the fullness of your spirit that when the Holy Spirit comes that they would see the love of Christ being poured out in their hearts like Paul said in Romans Lord I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that maybe have pushed you out to the sides who maybe are really in a spot right now where they're struggling deeply with lordship God would your grace and your truth shepherd them back where even now, through the power of your spirit, we can sing by faith, Jesus, be the center. Be the center. In Christ's name.